welcome back to Loki's Library, and if you are newer here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina, and this is where I am reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, and then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like, and share my videos, let me know what you think in the comments. I'm running a day behind this week because I have a cold, but that's okay because we're playing catch-up now. This week's book was a random find while browsing a local bookstore, Craft. Whoa, let's get that on camera. Katrina Craft, an American history by, by Glenn Adamson. I did have a cocktail picked out, but because of the cold, I opted instead of making a, a cocktail, I would just do, go with a classic hot toddy, which is still a cocktail of sorts. But it's basically, it's hot tea, a shot of alcohol of your choice, some honey and lemon. All of this is to taste, although per the teashelf.com, if it's a black tea, you should use rum. So I'm using rum for this toddy. So let's do this. I already have my cup of tea pre-made. Got my rum right here. Let's jump in. Now I am not sure what I expected with this book. Uh, let's see if I can break this down into some good and some bad. Let's see here. Get my rum in here. I'm also kind of sad because I didn't have any fresh lemons in the house and fresh lemon probably would be better than lemon juice, but it is what it is. I'm just gonna go with this. It is a history book. So it's, it's a history of America book. Okay. It's drawn from the perspective of the craftsmen and craftswomen. I'm just going to call them craftsmen because that's a lot easier than the mouthful that is men and women. It, it, it's drawn from their perspective, kind of the contributions that have been made by artisan communities in building America. And Adamson uses the broadest possible definition of craft, meaning an activity involving skill in making things by hand. And, and that's actually a pretty broad definition if you, when you take it in that, because most people hear craft, craft, and they think arts and crafts. They think sewing, they think macrame, they think, you know, pottery, they think, you know, the, like the, the hippy dippy movement, right? And, and that's fair. I think a lot of people would probably reach that. And certainly that is included, but he covers a much broader swath than that and uses a very broad definition of craft. That's a really heavy teaspoon because I mean, he goes broad on this and you'll, you'll see how broad as I get through this. Now he does start with the obvious Paul Revere, who was a known silversmith and of course made famous for his ride through long, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem. Um, certainly one of the founding fathers of this country, but he, he was a known artisan silversmith in the day. And he covers the early system of indentured servitude and how the craft guilds from Europe didn't find much headway in America because if an apprentice disliked their master, they would literally just run away to another state. A lot easier to run away to an entirely different state than to an entirely different country, believe it or not, because a lot of people spoke the same language here heavy influx of, of English immigrants, right? We learned about that also in Andrew Johnson, in the book on Andrew Johnson back in 2022, right? He was an apprentice tailor, but he disliked his master, so he left. The only real consequence is he was legally prohibited from practicing his trade in the same state as his master, which in a growing, expanding country was no real consequence at all. He was able to keep doing it, just he had to go to a different state. Um... He covered the hundreds and no doubt thousands of craftsmen who were slaves, which certainly included Frederick Douglass, Elizabeth Keckley, Booker T. Washington, and Dave the Potter. Now, Douglass, Keckley, and Washington are people that most people have heard about, right? They're, they're quite well known and revered for having been born in slavery and risen well above that um, status and making a difference in telling their stories. Now, Dave the Potter a little bit different. He was born a slave, trained as a potter. The only reason we even know that he existed is that he marked every piece of pottery that he made with his name, date, and a pithy saying. 
And all of that is certainly a tragic part of American history that should not be overlooked. Um, the, the fact that, that Douglas had to make his way north to freedom on the Underground Railroad, that Washington was a slave until Union soldiers freed him during the war, and that Keckley had to buy her own freedom with what she earned as a seamstress. Those, those are all tragedies, absolutely. Um, and, and it's absolutely horrifying that the only thing we know about Dave the Potter is that at one point in history he was owned by Lewis Miles. And, and that's literally pretty much all we know about him definitively. So... Adamson used that very broad definition of craft to include craftsmen such as Henry Ford and his production line. Uh, the building of unions in America, that was considered part of the crafts. What actually struck, it struck me as a little bit nebulous at first, but if you look at unions as taking the place of European artisans guilds, it makes a little more sense. And, and that's basically the book. It's, it's American history by way of the American craftsmen, which concept I am fine with. I think it's a great story and it needs to be told. However, the author is a white man. I have no problem with that either. Personally, I like white men. I'm married to one. My father's one. Um, but it didn't t did not take me long to Google him and learn that he graduated from Cornell and Yale, ultimately earning a PhD in art history in 2001. He lives in New York and London, works in museums, and all of that literally bleeds through in his writing and becomes quite obvious early on when I'd be embroiled in the story and suddenly, for no apparent reason, as would throw in that Quote, for the white middle class, prosperity seemed to be there for the taking. X was a white man. Y was a white man. White people spoke but failed because, quote, for all the good intentions, these projects still involved white people speaking on behalf of indigenous people. So, yeah, he's, he's not using the story of craft to bring things together. He's using it to maintain that there's a divide between artisans. Now, all of these points contribute nothing to the narrative, like literally nothing, and were thrown in almost as like a mea culpa, like Adamson is a white man telling a story that for political reasons he feels should be told by someone who is not a white man. Um, I mean, like maybe a lesbian black woman who is half Native American and possibly two-spirited should be telling this story, not him, because he's a white man. Because it's absolute anathema that a white man might be able to tell the story simply because it's a good story without apologizing for his interest in the topic, which I actually kind of feel bad for the man, believe it or not, as a result of that. Now, Adams, Adamson has definite problems with the American concept of the self-made man. He, he calls out Henry David Thoreau's Walden and how Thoreau was not as self-made and isolated as history would have us believe. But here's the thing. Thoreau may have been spinning a tall tale, but he was an author. That was literally what his job was. History, American history especially, is literally riddled with the self-made man, including the aforementioned Andrew Johnson, Miller Fillmore, Abraham Lincoln. I mean, good Lord, how many president books have I read over the last, you know, two years where I read their story and said, yeah, they were dirt poor when they were born and worked their way up to being president of the United States. What, what other country in the world would such a thing be even possible? I was actually a little surprised that he didn't include the Taylor president in his story, since Johnson was a literal craftsman, a tailor, who became a president. But then again, Johnson was problematic on several fronts. I mean, he was obviously in favor of keeping black people subservient, hence why his presidency was such a mess. Also, he kind of proved the point of the self-made man narrative, which Adamson claims is absolute poppycock, so there is that. Um, there were other misleading narrative in the story. The, the one that really stood out and had me going, what the actual fuck? 
was when he pegged the Zoot Suit riots in June of 1943 as being purely the result of racism, while America looked the other way as white women embraced Dior's new look. Now, here's a problem I have for this. And, and seriously, this is just to provide some context because as someone who was once heavily embroiled in costuming and fashioning history, I was genuinely irritated by this misrepresentation. Um, first off, first off, I'm not going to claim that race had nothing to do with the Zoot Suit riots. That would be disingenuous to claim such. It very clearly was a part of it, all right? The people who wore Zoot Suits were Mexican-American. That uh, This was the fashion trend for them. And it's not something that white people partook of. So it's, there was a very clear racial line in the sand there. Um, now, for those who don't know, in the 1940s, during the height of World War II, Zoot Suits were the fashionable trend for the Mexican-Americans, all right? Zoot suits used an absolutely enormous amount of fabric. They were very baggy. I'll see if I can find a picture and throw it up here for you guys to see what I'm talking about. Um, but this was at a time when America was rationing heavily. Everything was rationed. All fabric, especially because that was meant to support the war effort in sending our troops overseas to, you know, defeat Nazis. In June of 1943, some American servicemen attacked the Latino and Mexican-American community who were wearing these zoot suits, which sparked several days of rioting. Adamson paints it as they were attacked because they were supposed to be poor and downtrodden, yet here they were wearing these expensive suits. Well, no, they were attacked because the country was rationing fabric and their suits used such an enormous amount of it that it was seen as anti-American. Social class had nothing to do with it. It was un-American is what is what it was seen as back in the day. Now, for the second half of this complaint, the, the passage in the book reads, and this is a direct quote, the incident reflected existing tensions between whites and Latino war workers, yet it also shows how provocative the style was as a demonstration of conspicuous consumption by people expected to be poor and differential. Okay, that's actually fair. That's more or less concisely what I just said. That's more concise than what I just said, but I was providing some context. Next sentence. Quote, seemingly at the far end of the cultural spectrum from the zoot suit was the poodle skirt, an emblem of the respectable white middle class girl head. End quote. Now, the way it's framed in the book makes it sound like they were beating the crap out of Mexican-Americans for wearing zoot suits while letting girls wear these big, poofy, fluffy poodle skirts, and that it was all because of race. Well, no. The poodle skirt was literally a decade later. The war was ended. There was no more rationing of fabric. In fact, Christian Dior's new look, the zoot suit riots, happened in 43. The new look became popular in 1947, a mere four years later also after the war, and was an em embraced as an indication that the war was over and that they were allowed to return to extravagance in fashion. So that was really misleading how he framed that whole passage and narrative. And um, it, it wasn't, it, it was the timing of the zoot suit that caused the problem, the, the zoot suit as a fashion statement that caused the problem, not the race of the people who liked the fashion. And that was just very misleading. So f framing those two fashion trends as allowed or not allowed base as a matter of race was disingenuous at best. Now, American history is not easy, but no country in the world has an easy history. I mean, no people on this planet has a completely clean history where everything was utopian and perfect and nobody ever owned slaves ever. And racism never existed. These things don't exist because it's utopian. The word utopia literally means no place because it's fictional and made up, all right? The history of humanity, all four million years of us, 
is messy, sloppy, warfare, brutal, disgusting, violent. All right. Humanity has never gotten along well with other humans ever. It's always been a race to the top because ultimately we're all animals, right? Watch animal kingdom someday, sometime. Now, Adamson naturally mentions the gender divide in learning craft, how women were taught to sew in home economics going back to the 19th century and men were taught woodworking. Again, not quite accurate. Uh, a book I read many years ago, The Lost Art of Dress by Linda, and I am going to butcher her name, Przybyszewski. I know I didn't say that right. I'll, I'll spell it up here for you. But I haven't reviewed it for this channel. I read it several years ago. I'll probably reread it and do so now because it had some really fascinating history on home economics, which was very much a 20th century invention. It did not just teach sewing. It literally taught women how to run a house, which included budgeting, how to do your taxes, balance checkbook, meal planning, cooking, and yes, sewing. All of these things were included. Uh, Adamson decries how the feminine craft of weaving is looked down on by the white male artisans because it is traditionally feminine without ever acknowledging the historical and evolutionarily, ev evolutionary reasons for why weaving was traditionally feminine. Another book I'll have to reread for the channel uh, was by Elizabeth Whalen Barber. It's called Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years. She provides the evolutionary reasons why weaving is traditionally a feminine craft. It, uh, it all has to do with homesteading. Weaving allows a woman to stay in the house and raise the babies. Not a damn thing wrong with that. It's as a sexually reproducing species, that's literally what we do. Stay home and raise the babies. Uh, nor, incidentally, is it wrong that men would learn woodworking for the exact same reason, namely that they were the ones with the strength to cut down and transport wood. Ladies, have you ever tried moving a log? They are heavy. I mean, I can do it. You could do it if you had to. Trust me, they're fucking heavy, all right? There's a reason that men usually did that. Moving a whole damn tree and trimming it down for making furniture in a time without benefit of bandsaws and power drills would have required muscle power and not having children underfoot because if you drop a, a log on a child, you're probably going to kill the child because wood's heavy. So claiming that the choice in teaching sewing to women and woodworking to men is gender biased completely bypasses the millions of years of evolutionary reasons for these choices. Now for some good credit on this book. So I didn't completely hate it. They had some good history. Um, like I said, but it, it was good to get the context of, you know, Douglas and Keckley and Washington and Potter. Um, but the for all this proselytizing on how evil white people are and always have been, and the, the book is actually surprisingly apolitical, if you can believe it, that there was none of this Democrat good and Republican bad ethos being inherently touted. Um, I mean, kind of thinks all white people are bad, but whatever. Um, he does mention how in the South, black shop owners would also own slaves, which was a shock to me that he would actually go there. And he is outraged by how craft items are rarely seen as artistic in their own right, despite having rather large showings at the Modern Museum of Modern Art in New York and other museums nationwide, uh, which he mentions. All right, that the, these get displays in museums, but are rarely seen as artistic in their own right, which it really isn't fair. I mean, I'm going to throw up a picture here that I took at the Tampa City Museum when we were in Florida on vacation of a, a Seminole jacket that was entirely hand-stitched. It had to be, trust me, because the, how tiny the, the squares of fabric are, you can't run that through a machine. It has to be done by hand. And so I'm just blown away by the absolute intricacy of it. He, on the plus side, 
he currently does and has worked for museums, so it's entirely possible he's trying to rectify that. And I think that's part of what this book is designed to do, was to change the narrative a little bit, help flip it so that these crafts would be recognized as artistic and having artistic integrity in their own right. I mean, he does blame the white men for why craft is not seen as art. It's always the white men. But he is also a white man trying to correct that, so I guess it's kind of fair. Um, he also points out, and this is an interesting point, that, that one of the major differences between craft and, and high art, or I guess, is that craft is functional. Um, it's just as likely that its functionality is what precludes it from being elevated to the status of art. I mean, he mentions a few very rare pieces of like pottery that are recognized as being artistic in their own right. Um, I, I don't remember off the top of my head, although it's certainly in the book. But they're rare. They're the outliers that, that make them elevated to art, not the norm. Again, it's a fair point, though. Craft is functional. It, it, nothing wrong with, with beauty being functional, right? But it is functional. Uh, while at first I was confused by how broadly he defined craft, because I wasn't quite sure where he was going with the inclusion of unions and, you know, Henry Ford's production line, I also appreciated how he found artistic merit where others might not. Uh, finding beauty in things like hot rods and lowriders, which he discusses, and kind of tributary art pieces like the AIDS quilt, I, I do think that's impressive because not everybody would find beauty in such, in, in such tragedy. By the end of the book, I genuinely did feel sorry for Adamson because clearly he's deeply passionate about art and about finding beauty in the world around him. But he's surrounded daily by people who no doubt tell him that he's wrong because he's a white man. And I kind of got the sense like he was compelled to include all these jabs about the evils of whiteness because he is a white man trying desperately to prove that he's one of the quote-unquote good ones. Um, not one of the mansplainers. When, really, when taken to its logical conclusion, any book written by the dominant white patriarchy is mansplaining whatever topic the book is about because that's the world that you're working on creating. So maybe stop apologizing for being a white man and just tell the story, all right? This, I mean, this book was seriously a mixed bag for me. I mean, some of it was, was very good, some of it was excellent, some of it was roll your eyes irritating. But his love for the topic of craft as art, worthy of being identified as such, is, is certainly clear on every page. So I can appreciate somebody who's passionate about their topic of expertise. And that's it for this week. If you like what you saw, don't forget to subscribe. I will see you guys on Sunday. Bye.